Greetings, troubled listeners, and welcome back to the Troubled Men podcast. I am Renee Coman, sitting in my safe house on the line with my co-host, the original troubled man for troubled times and future mayor of New Orleans, Mr. Manny Chevrolet. Welcome, Manny. Hey, man. What's happening? Oh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm doing well, doing well, enjoying this weather. How are you? I'm not feeling very good. I got the, oh. the, my first COVID shot today, mm. and uh, it was over our doctor. My doctor set it up. Our doctor. Uh-huh. Staff physician, yeah. Yeah, he set it up for me, and I, uh, first of all, I don't like shots to begin with, but the girl who gave me the shot was very nice, and they gave me the shot, and they, they tell you to wait around for 15 minutes, mm-hmm. you know, just to see if anything, and sure. immediately, I just felt, I felt so cold. I just was, really? I was, I was, yeah, I was shivering in that place. But that was wow. then it kind of it kind of subsided. But the one thing I didn't understand is, you know, they told me congratulations. <laughs> mm-hmm. Why the fuck would they tell me congratulations? I'm just getting a shot. I'm not having a fucking baby. Well, I'm not getting, I'm I'm not getting married. <laughs> you know, they said congratulations. What the fuck is that about? Congratulations. A lot of people have felt a sense of relief when they get that uh, that first vaccine. I mean, you know, it's it, you're on your way to having immunity. So uh, after a year, it feels like some relief. I, I know people that have actually uh, teared up when they when they were even just able to make the appointment. So there, you know, it, it can be a you know an emotional thing. But uh, but you you were not emotionally moved, but you were immediately uh, started started reacting to it, huh? Yeah, this is I think why I haven't had a flu shot in over twenty years. Huh, you're because very sensitive. Of these, yeah, I have, you know, I, I have a lot of uh, chronic problems. You know, I have stomach issues. I have liver issues. I have a lot of issues. Hmm. And the, the shot, uh, so I waited there 15 minutes, and I kind of felt a little better with the cold. And then I walked to my car, and right outside my car, I threw up. Wow. I threw up, Yeah. Man, and, so sorry to hear that, Manny. Yeah. So, and now I got to go back in two weeks to get another shot. Right. You know? Right. Well, maybe the the second one won't be. Uh, you. Well, I hear it's worse. I hear it's worse though. The second it, it, one. It depends. You know, I I had uh, some some side effects from the first one, some chills that first night, but but much not immediately like you at all. It took me a good twelve hours before I was you know, or even longer than that before I was feeling anything. But, but, uh, that lasted just a few hours that night. And then for the second one, I had almost nothing. So really? it's, it's hard oh. to predict. Yeah. You know, they I say drinking know. a lot of water will help, you know, helps to, uh, uh, I did that. I drank okay. water. Uh, I feel very nauseated. I took some Pepto-Bismol, you know, and then after I threw up, I, I got in my car and I started driving home. And apparently, uh, a cop must have saw me throw up. Throw up. So he pulled me over, <laughs> and I I, I I explained to him, you know, uh, I just got the shot, and these are my reactions to it. But you know, I just wanted to get home, and this right. fucking guy, you know, was at you know a license and registration and proof of insurance kind of thing. Really, he still wanted to go through all that, even after yeah, you told him that you just been vaccinated. I just, yeah, I had, yeah. I showed him my card, hmm. you know, and uh, didn't cut any. You know, he looked me up. I, he looked me up in the system, uh-huh. you know, like these guys do, 
and um, and then uh, he said, "You can go." Okay. So, I don't know, maybe right. he thought I was uh, on the methadone program or something. Okay. Yeah. Just you were uh, yeah. an issue there in the parking lot, right? Right. right. Yeah. I don't know, but uh, what's going on with you? Oh, well, uh, you know, just uh, like I said, enjoying this nice weather. You know, it's uh, we have some of the three weeks of nice weather that we have in the in the springtime. We're right in the middle of it. So I, I uh, played a couple of outside gigs this weekend and, and actually went and attended a gig that I wasn't even playing on, which is unusual for me. But I uh, went and saw a couple of, uh, of our former guests playing at a uh, uh, venue on Chapatula Street. That was very pleasant, and uh, actually went out and, and ate at uh, Lebanon Cafe. So it was a whole, whole little uh, pleasant Saturday afternoon. So, so you're you're going out there. You feel safe. Well, it was all outside. I'm I, I'm st- uh, my wife is still waiting for you know a couple of weeks uh, to go by after her second uh, vaccine dose. So we weren't inside anywhere. I'm, I'm still holding off on that. But uh, man, once once the, the whole thing is, you know, once everybody's uh, in the clear, I'm definitely going to Galatoire's. I'm going to sit inside and have a nice fucking meal. Ooh, fancy. Well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's uh, you know, we're, we're saving it for a special occasion here. Um, really? Anyway, right. so I uh, got got some news. Got a call from uh, from Uganda Roberts. Uh, he's dead. Uganda. He's still dead. Um, it's been a year now. Actually, his birthday. And we killed is, him, didn't we? Kill we, him, we, Renee? We didn't kill him. We actually we were the last thing that he did. He looked forward to doing the podcast. It gave him, you know, he he knew he was near the end, but it, he he uh, it, it it really was a a bright light in his last couple of weeks and. So his wife called me to tell me that they're doing a, uh, a memorial for him at Congo Square this this uh, Sunday. They're gonna have a drum circle. They're gonna have a second line. So uh, she wanted to invite us down there, Manny. So I'm gonna go, and and you're you're more than welcome. And I'm sure she would. Uh, Sounds like a super spreader event. Well, yeah, it'll be outside. It'll be uh, we'll uh, we'll we'll be spread out. I'm, I'm because go black s- people don't want the shot. Uh, well, I don't know that that's true. I think there's a lot of black people getting the shot. And, uh, well, be, don't be say that to the, the, the Kuskogee Airmen. They got the shot. Well, you know, there, yeah, there, there certainly is some, some, uh, some community resistance for good reason. But, uh, but yeah, I think, I think uh, you know, the, the message is getting out that uh, this is the, the, the way we're going to get beyond this. So anyway, that's, uh, that's what's going on uh, in, in uh, Troubled Men podcast world from my end. All right, let's get to our guest because I'm, uh, I'm slowly dying here. Okay, very okay. good, very good. Very All good. right. All right, well, uh, we have a terrific guest tonight. He's, uh, yeah, he's, he's a, great. Yes, he's, he's a, a Grammy award-winning record producer, arranger, saxophone player, composer. He's been a member of Los Lobos for... 36 or so years uh but before that he was in the blasters top jimmy uh the flesh eaters it's uh you know going back to your heyday in in la manny so we're going to hear all about that so without further ado the great mr steve berlin welcome steve howdy everybody hey steve what's happening with you sorry not feeling well man but it's that's the that's the virus at work buddy yeah That's that's how your body knows to uh kick its ass kick covid's ass so yeah, just get through know. it. Right. It's very well, cold. 
Well, Steve, the, the first time I got to see you play was uh, at Jimmy's, like back in the, the early 80s with uh, Los Lobos. Uh, you, you guys were yeah. playing. I, I went with Alex Chilton. He and I went. Yeah, and, and, uh, I remember. And, and well, I, let me tell you the story. See if you remember this. So you're there. You, you come out of the dressing room before the gig. You have your saxophone around your neck. You look slightly perturbed. I can see you're, you're looking for somewhere to warm up. And and you're kind of looking around the club. I think you finally find like a broom closet to go to go, you know, stand in and, and blow a little bit, you know. Um, so you do that. Then then you all get ready to start the gig and you come out and say, well, tonight we won a Grammy Award. So we're very happy about that. And I was like, yeah, OK, uh, you know, you're, you got to warm up in a broom closet and you just won a, a Grammy Award. That sounds like the music business. Yeah, man. Yeah, it was. <laughs> The, the, this is the so here's a funny story. So um, that the there was a restaurant on the corner by Jimmy's, right? And we're all in yeah. there. So you know we're you know we had we didn't think you know there was no chance in hell we were going to win. Uh, but this was you know like back in that those days. I don't think I, mean, I haven't watched the Grammys in a while, but they do you know like it, was, it wasn't part of the main deal. You know it was it was the the pre show um, for the lesser categories, right? What was the category? What was it? The was uh, Mexican American performance was the category. Oh, okay. Um, but when that when that was a category, so we're all like hanging at the bar, and number one, we had to convince the the, the bartender just to turn the the, the the show on. Like it was like you know whatever, <laughs> you know. I was like you know, we're, and we're like yeah, you know we're you know we're up for a Grammy, and the guy's like yeah, sure you are, buddy. <laughs> yeah, as if. Uh -huh. So we're we're there. And the sound is off. We're just like watching the screen. Like we hadn't, we didn't even know what we were watching for. Like we like, you know, what, what were they going to do? And the sound right. is off and we're sitting there, we're drinking and waiting and drinking and waiting. And then, you know, like they, so like there's like a little vignette as they come out of commercial <clears throat> and there's a shot of, of two of our wives, like two of the guys' okay. wives, like, wait a minute. Hey, what, what, and you know, this was pre-internet. It was like, you know, pre-cell phone. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't like anyone's going to call our, our cell phone or, I mean, it's like pre-pagers even, I think. So we're like, wait a minute, right. did we fucking win? And yeah, sure <laughs> enough, we, we won. It was kind of amazing. So your wives went up to receive the yeah, they, award? They were there. Yeah, they were there in our, in our stead. Uh, and what did they say? Uh, how would I know? I mean, I, <laughs> well, were, yeah, I know that. Watching, but I mean, we were watching it, uh, did the, you the, ask the, them later what they said? They yeah, just we, were just, we were just happy we won. And then we went over to Jimmy's, and there were like fifteen people in the place. But it was all it was all yeah. good. I remember what was the dude's name? The guy from uh, oh, English band uh, Roddy something or other. I can't remember his name now. But he and I were like, we decided it would be a good night to like really get New Orleans drunk. So we, you know, I, I saw uh. Don through uh, beer goggles that night. Uh, Roddy uh -huh. Frame, uh, Aztec Camera. Yeah, 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 was, yeah. Roddy Frame. Yeah, so. He and I got completely, completely uh, gone, <laughs> which wasn't, okay, well, it wasn't like I wasn't, that wasn't my like go-to move and still isn't, but that seemed like it was just a, a Wednesday for Roddy. Like, you, like any excuse was, was all good with him. <laughs> right, right. Well, you'd won a Grammy, you know, you were. Yeah, I won a Grammy. I mean, what, you know, what were you supposed to do? Right but uh, yeah, it was pretty funny. Right and, like, and then we started yelling and screaming and the, and the guys like, you know, the bartender's like, get the fuck out of here, man. You, you know, like, yeah, that, that's a good story, but you guys are full of shit, man. Come on, leave. Uh, 
That reminds me of uh, when I was uh, my band. We had toured on the East Coast with the Red Hot Chili Peppers in, in like 1989, 1990, and we had done finished our leg with them, and we were driving back from New York to LA, and we were picking up gigs all along the way: New Jersey, Philly, Pittsburgh, uh, and we 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 ended up in St. Louis for a week and. You know Xander Sloss? Uh, yeah. Yeah, Xander ha- is from St. Louis, so he got his brother, uh, Chip, to uh, who was managing a band called The Unconscious, to set up a, sh- a week of shows for us. So we were there in St. Louis for a week. And when we were in New York, we had taped a segment of uh, The Week in Rock, MTV. Oh, God, yeah, MTV. Remember yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. Remember, remember MTV when they showed yeah, videos? Yeah, I do, yeah. But so the guy who produced the interview, actually, Renee, is a CEO of Velobar. He got okay. the interview done. Yeah, because he was working for Sony at the time. All right. Anyway. All these are connected, man. Yeah, so he told us it's going to air at a certain time of the day, and you should check it out. So we were all excited, so – uh, Xander's brother Chip didn't have any kind of cable or TV at all in his place. So we went to some fucking, me and Dick Rude found some little bar in St. Louis, and it was probably the size of the Mylan Club, Renee. Remember that mm-hmm. Mylan Club? Yeah, you know that. Sure. We used to, and everyone in there was black. It was all these an old, old black people. Nice. So we said... Dick Rudin and I said, listen, you got MTV? They said, yeah, we got the MTV. We'll buy everyone a drink in here if you let us watch this segment. Okay. And, <laughs> and, <laughs> and it came on, and we're watching ourselves being interviewed, and they show our performance uh, with the Peppers and stuff like that. And these old black men were just like, that is the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. It's horrible. What the hell are you guys up to? It was, I mean, they just, and we had just bought them all a drink, you know? Right, just, right. It still that you know, wasn't enough. Yeah, you yeah. buying them a drink wasn't, wasn't enough to uh, cross that cultural barrier there. And this was like 11 o'clock in the morning oh, when it okay. aired. Wow. <laughs> and right, the nice, bar was nice. filled with people, you know? It was 11 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, sounds like so a good time. So we got the hell out of there, and uh, okay. so... It, you right, know, on, that's, right on, right on. Yeah. Well, um, you know, I was going to say that's the first time I saw you play, Steve. But but uh, Manny probably saw you, you know, back in it with the blasters and stuff. I'm not sure if that's true, but but um, well, well, first of all, how did you wind up getting in the blasters? Did you did you know Lee Allen first or or no? No, okay. I did not. Um, I uh, are you from L.A.? No, I grew up in Philadelphia. All right, and, uh, so you come to L.A. as a young musician. As a callow youth in the mid-'70s. Um, right, well, what, what brought you? The, what made you just you wanted to be in the record business and thought that's the place to be? You just went there well, blind? No, I was uh, – so when I was in Philly, um, remember uh, the band uh, The Soul Survivors? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Expressed right to your heart. So I was – those guys were good friends of mine. Um, and uh, the band – so there, there were two brothers, Charlie and Richie Ingui, were the singers, and – they had a killer band in Philly and they were all my buddies and we would like jam and play together and hang together. And they, uh, I was, I wasn't, I don't know what the hell I was doing, but I wasn't doing much. And they all moved to LA and within not long after they got to LA, they were backing up, uh, Billy Preston and then 
Greg Allman. And they were oh, like, okay. dude, you gotta, you gotta come out here. This is like, you know, it's unbelievable. So what was this Christmas 74? I packed up and went west. Wow. And uh, within, uh, I don't know, I like, you know, within like two weeks of my arrival, they lost both gigs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think Billy got, he was like, it, it was both like, it wasn't musical. It was like, you know, like uh, something legal with Billy. And then Greg okay. was, that was when he was with Cher. And that it was one of those times when, in like, you know, like every move he made was chart, like, you know, he had photographers watching him like 24 seven. And he just decided he was going to go off the reservation. So he, he just kind of walked out on his own life. Actually, he walked, to, to be perfectly specific, he took us out to eat one night. I, I did like one rehearsal with him. Uh, and I, it was all good. And he took us to, there's a restaurant. Uh, I don't know if you remember this place called Dharma Greb on, on Hollywood Boulevard. It was a Moroccan restaurant. Uh, really, really fancy, really, really expensive. That, but that was his hang. So we went there and we're yucking it up and living large. And, you know, I'm, what, 19 years old. I'm in L.A. I'm playing with Greg Lallman, like one of my heroes. Like, you know, life at that moment mm -hmm. really couldn't have, couldn't have gone much better. So we're just like hanging out, sitting there at the table with the guys. And like we slowly notice, hey, you know, Greg's been gone for a while. Like, you know, he got up to use the, the head or something like that. And then 20 minutes later, it's like, hey, you know, Greg's gone. And <laughs> sure enough, like he literally walked out, left us with a, I think it was like a $1,400 bill. None of us had any money. Like, you know, like nobody oh, had a fucking dime. I don't know how we got out of that one. Um, <laughs> and he was like, he, he was, he just left, he was gone for like a week and no one could find him. And it was in the fucking papers. And he turns out he's in like, you know, Joshua tree with some, you know, 17 year old girl, like all this other crazy shit. So anyway, so I'm out there and you know, that there was no, the band lost their gig. So we just, you know, we started playing ourselves. This was, you know, well before punk rock or anything like that. And so we had like some weekly gigs, uh, there was a gig at the place that was across from what is now the Scientology Center on on Fountain, not uh, Franklin. Uh, it's I think it's a it's a coffee place now, but it used to be I can't remember the name of the club, but it was a, it was a pretty cool club. And there was another one in Venice, and we just sort of like played and played and played. And this was sort of like the band. Uh, so there, there were two brothers in this band: they're, they're Freddie and uh, Stevie Beckmeyer. That so the band was called the Beckmeyer Brothers. And uh, so we were, we got good. I mean, it was a really good band. Both brothers were really good writers. Um, we had. Where uh, were you living? Where were you guys all shacked up or squatting? They had a place in Hollywood uh, on Ivar, and I, when I first came out, I was staying on Hollywood Boulevard at, at this place. It was like a halfway house for people that had been recently released from a mental institution. So that was kind of exciting. Okay. And then uh, I found a place on Coenga with the so me and the and the keyboard player in the band um, who's also from Philly uh, got a place uh, on off of Coenga. So we were there for I guess a couple of years. And uh, oh, so you're yeah. right there, man. That's a great yeah. place to be. Yeah, you're there. It was, you're yeah, there. It was great. Yeah, and then I, I was in. Then uh, he let's see, he moved out. Uh, as the band, the band, so we were together for a while. We actually got signed to Casablanca. So we were on Casablanca mm. and this was in the, the heydays. I mean, this was like basically, you know, like every transaction was, was conducted in cocaine. It was like, no, no money actually yeah, ever yeah. changed hands anywhere. It was just like, you know, anyway, you know, uh, you guys want a gig? How much are we getting? Oh, you're getting a gram. Oh, okay, cool. Like, <laughs> <it was> like <laughs> right. 
Um, <laughs> I, you know, like the, the, the label was just, it was literally like a, you know, a cocaine supermarket effectively. I mean, I, I never saw any like actual work being done. It was just, you know, people. It was a money people, laundering. It was a money laundering. Label. Yeah, it was, it was nuts. Yeah, that Kiss was Kiss was like the big band on that Kiss, label. Kiss, but uh, Donna Summer, yeah. it was like the summer of Donna Summer. So it was all about you know uh, love to love you baby and all that bullshit. So and we were you know like a kind of a R and B bandish. So it wasn't. Uh, I mean, we weren't really. I don't know how we got signed to be perfectly honest, but we made a record. Yeah, and um, you know I had always been at that point. You know I I I loved the idea of making records. I'd never made one. But, you know, we the band I was in in Philly prior to, you know, going to um, California was uh, a band called uh, Skyline. And we had cut like some demos and some stuff like that. And I was like, I was the youngest guy in the band, but I was the one that was, you know, like I, I just wanted to be, I wanted to figure out how records were made. So I would, you know, I was just mm-hmm. hanging around bothering the the engineers and, you know, I just wanted to be in the studio. That was like, I mean, that's all I really wanted. And then, so okay. we got signed to Casablanca, and so I'm like, finally, I get to see how real records were made because whatever it was that I I was doing, I didn't think it was a real record. So we got mm. signed, and we got uh, so the label effectively assigned us uh, this producer whose name was what's his name? Um, his big claim to fame that he had done uh, one of the later Moody Blues records, like not okay. not the hits. Yeah. None of the hits. Right. Uh, Mike Brunt was his name. Chris, no, I'm sorry, Chris okay. Brunt. Chris Brunt. Um, and, you know, English guy, very nice. Um, and uh, we had, like, but we had, uh, like, somehow or other we had encountered Bob Margoloff, who produced uh, Stevie Wonder's records, and we had done mm-hmm. some stuff with him. And that, like, w- the work we did with him got us the deal, but they didn't want Margoloff to produce the record for some reason. So we ended up with this guy, Chris Brunt, and, like, finally I get to see, like, what a real producer does, and and this guy literally could, like, if there were two choices, if there were two obvious choices, he would always pick the wrong one. Like, like it was uncanny how, how, how often he was wrong. Like, it was just, like, for instance, like, we had a great drummer who was poached by uh, Barry White, of all people. So we needed to have a drummer for the record. And, you know, Alvin was amazing. Like, our, our original drummer was, like, he's the guy on all those Barry White hits, like that unbelievable groove. That's Alvin. His name is Alvin Taylor. He's still still around, still playing as far as I know. But he wasn't around for the record. So cool. we, we actually reached nice. out and got Richie fucking Hayward to play. And Richie was in, like, hmm. we were rehearsing with Richie Hayward, which is like, I was like a huge Little Feet fan. I was like, I can't believe we're playing with Richie Hayward. Right. I mean, like beyond belief. And Chris was like, I'm not going to do the, I'll spare you the English accent, but it was like, no, I, I don't like his groove. There's something about his groove that just bothers me. I don't know what it, like, like as if you would have, <laughs> as if the guy that produced the fucking Moody Blues knew what Richie Hayward, I mean, he was busy. I mean, but it was Richie fucking Hayward. I mean, he's like one of the best drummers that right. ever lived. So he right. fires Richie Hayward, mm, which we, I couldn't believe. <laughs> and he hired, he hired the guy who played on Saturday Night Live who was perfectly lovely. I mean, he's very nice, great, mm-hmm. you know, good dude, but he wasn't Richie Hayward. I mean, he was just, he was just a guy, you know, like, like, an, like right. a New York session guy. Like he had no, you know, the he didn't first have, drummer for SNL, the very first drummer. For uh, SNL? Not the first one. His name was Daoud Shaw. So oh, no, like, okay, the, no. like, so this would be what? 70. Oh yeah. I mean, it must've been one. Yeah. He might've been the first drummer to be honest with you. Cause this would have been, 
76. Yeah, 76. Yeah. So it might have been, yeah, he might have been the first dude. And again, he wasn't, you know, I mean, it's fine, but it was like, you know, the difference to me was like, what are you fucking kidding me? That was, you know, you fired Richard for this? But he hung and he, you know, he, he got through the record and play, but it was just like every single choice the guy made was, <laughs> was erroneous. Do you, like think, do, you think, do you think that maybe your producer uh, was sleeping with that drummer? I fuck if I know. No, I, but you know, what I took away from it was that no matter what I ever, like I, I had, you know, I didn't know if I was ever going to be a producer, but I wanted to, you know, I wanted to find out what it was that whatever it was, I couldn't, I could not, if I, if I tried, I could not have done a worse job than this guy. <laughs> yeah, so I just figured, so, you know, this so guy could get like, lose. what do I have to lose? <laughs> like they paid him like 50 grand. Well, you know, I'll probably paid him 10 grand and 40 grand in cocaine as far as I know. But, uh-huh, right. um, but they paid him a fortune to, you know, do this shitty record. Anyway, so record came out. You know, we didn't really tour. I mean, that wasn't that didn't happen. But we we kept playing. But at that point, so that was sort of right around when the L.A. quote unquote scene was developing. So this would be like 79, 78. And I just mm-hmm. I was playing with a band called uh, Beachy and the Beach Nuts, which, you know, is, was about as silly as, as it sounds. Um, but we played, you know, we were decent R and B band and we were playing like all around, all around the city. I mean, again, this is like before there was a scene, but we were very visible Mm -hmm. and through them, I met a guy named, uh, fast Freddie Patterson who, who liked the way I played and he put a band together called the precisions. So I started playing with the precisions and then through, through Freddie, I ended up playing with all these different bands, like, you know, because there weren't really a lot of sax players and there weren't really you know there's guys who would make noise on a sax but there weren't many guys who could actually actually play and i could somewhat play so and the punk scene is exploding and the punks yeah. don't want to sax and the punks well, no, don't want I was, sax no i was you know i was in a few, quite a few of the, the punk bands I mean, no they they did i mean i was a hal negro on the satin tones i was in a bunch of <laughs> a bunch of them uh it wasn't you know and okay. this was like before uh you know fear made it unsafe to play a saxophone uh, right yeah. Uh, no, I was, you know, I, I was, I was busy. I mean, I was playing with a bunch of people, but through, you know, basically just being visible every night of the week, I was, um, I was around. And so through Freddie, I got to meet the album brothers and we would have like record parties. Like we go to their house and drink a lot of shitty beer and, you know, just listen to 78s and 45s all night. I mean, that was certainly not an unusual occurrence. And they would come, they would come see Freddie's band, which, you know, the, precisions would play quite a bit and then i and then i got uh then i was in top jimmy's band which was really sort of the more or less the graduate class you know freddie was was a great entertainer but not a great singer um but uh the uh top jimmy was an amazing singer and the band was you know you know usually pretty great and, and people would come and hang out and play like you know david lee roth would come down you know the alvin brothers would come i mean people would just come to hang out with with Jimmy, it was a. We had a gig every Monday night at the Cafe de Graham, so it was sort of yes. like a, a yeah. theme. It was. Yeah, a I remember. I rem- and then you guys moved to Raji's after Cafe. And then we moved to Raji's when they when the the basement at Cafe de Graham flooded for the eighty millionth time. Yeah, they, they would have regular sewage floods down there. So yeah, was, and well, David David Lee Roth mentioned your band in one of their songs. Yeah, he had. There's songs. a song called Top Jimmy. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he was, he, he was you know, quite a character. One time, uh, yeah, in the early '80s, when these, uh, you know, LA closes at 2 a.m., but you could always find something else going on. It's just like yep. you know, you got to hear hear it word of mouth. 
And I remember um, me and a buddy of mine had just seen a band play, and everyone was closed down. We heard about this after hours thing right off Coanga, I think, in Highland or something like that. Yep. And and we go there, and uh, David Lee Roth is there holding court, mm-hmm. you know, with a bunch of people. It's an after hours place. We're drinking and all that kind of stuff. And I just walked up to him and I said, "Hey, man, you owe me fifty bucks." <laughs> and he says, "I do." He goes, I go, yeah. And he gave me 50 bucks. <laughs> he probably was good for it, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he, you know, he, he wasn't on Casablanca Records, but he no, was fully loaded no. with stuff, I'm sure. Was that, the, uh, was that the Zero Zero Club by chance? Was that sounds like it is? Yeah, the Zero yeah. Zero Club. It didn't start till like two thirty in yeah, the morning. Yeah, started two Yeah, I, I actually that's I, the place. Yeah, I, I met my wife there, so that's that's it's so. Oh, kind of okay. Infamous. <laughs> it's, it's infamous in 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 my personal uh, my personal mythology. That's the place. Yeah, yeah. The zero. Okay, goddamn man, you're bringing nice, back nice. some memories. Okay. Yeah, right. So did I, where did I leave so, the story? So then uh, you start playing with with the blasters as as well as well, like, I was, all uh, these other well, actually, there, these so other the, bands the, and well, mm-hmm. what happened was uh, there was an interstitial bit. So I was um, I got a job at a music store uh, called Bettman's, which was sort of a legendary. It was a this, it was a house on uh, Larchmont Boulevard, uh, north of Beverly. And it was this family, Saul and Lil. Uh, Betnan and their son and daughter. And Saul was just like one of the sweetest people in the world. And he didn't really care about business. He just wanted, he, he always had his alto sax around his neck. And whenever mm-hmm. anybody, and I mean anybody would walk through the door, he would go, hey, do you want to play? <laughs> so there'd be like, you know, the, the guitar player from Striper would come in and Saul would be like, yeah, come on, let's play. <laughs> like he, he just didn't yeah. give a shit. He just wanted to, he just wanted to be in his place and, and play his, his shitty alto sax with whoever walked in the door. So I was the woodwind guy at the at the store, and uh, one day I'm in there, and again, pre-cell phones, pre-everything, and the phone rings, and they, hey, Steve, it's for you, and it was Dave Alvin saying, and he goes, you know, hey, we're, we're recording uh, Little Willie John's I'm Shaking tonight, do you have a baritone saxophone? And I did not, but I said, of course, uh-huh, <laughs> and right. uh, there happened to be one, like, literally, like, the phone was sitting on the baritone, you know, like, it was, there was one right there, uh-huh. Um so um, that was uh, so I pulled it off the wall and went to the session and it went well. And they said, "What are you doing tomorrow?" And I said, "Nothing." And so they said, "Well, come back and let's you know let's let's do another song." And so slowly but surely, I sort of entered the the cosmology of the blasters, and my life changed from that one phone call. So nice, nice. So you hadn't really been playing a lot of Barry before that. You're just playing tenor. I never, I had never played a Barry. I, the the first time I played a baritone was on that record. I had never. Wow, I mean, no I took kidding. it out of, the, out of the case at the session, and that mouthpiece, believe it or not, is still the mouthpiece that I use to this day. I mean, I never. It was like it was a miracle mouthpiece. I mean, I don't know what it ha- would have happened had that had it not had. I mean, it was. I guess it was just meant to be, but uh, it was a really a really good mouthpiece. And it was a really good horn. I mean, it was an amazing saxophone, just like a literally like a museum, like completely unique. Like somebody much like me had it made for him in the 40s. So it, it, it was a it was a 1936 uh, Busher baritone, but it had all this extra armor on it. So it was made mm-hmm. like for the road. It was like double braced for like travel. The oh, guy had nice. put uh, all this like extra hardware. I mean, it weighed more than a Volkswagen, but it was you know it, it, <laughs> it was it was a great horn, and 
um, yeah, so that that's kind of where it all started. And then, uh, you know, not long after I was in the blasters and we were on the road and I was no longer working at the music store. Nice, nice. You know, I was I was realizing today you're you're our fourth Barry player we've had on the podcast. We've had more oh, Barry players than than tenor wow. players. We had we had uh, Dana Cawley. We had uh, yeah, uh, Roger I'm Lewis a... from from the oh, oh, nice. yeah, Dana's fantastic. And we had uh, Ben Elman from the Galactic. Yeah, man. So, wow, so you're you in good company. Change the name of the podcast. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Low note, low notes only, or something. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we're yeah we're taking the low road for sure. Yeah, indeed. Well, uh, well, so so you're on the road with the Blasters. Is, is Lee Allen uh, on the road with you guys? Is that yeah, the, uh, man? He was my you know, my hero and my roommate. That was kind of wow. <laughs> weird combo, but <laughs> but you know he was like the sweetest human being in the world. Just you know like just so generous and so like you know I mean I had no reason to think I was anything, and he was like always very 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 like supportive and complimentary he goes man you sound just like red allen like i do not sound wow. like red allen man. <laughs> Give me a fucking break. Cool. but he would say shit like that to me all the time like just you know kind of pump me up and it was just you know i can't even begin to tell you how important i mean i i i literally think about lee every single time i play i mean i think about him all the time i am uh you know, he was just such a human, amazing human being, and just to say he was my friend is like, you know, it's kind of. I mean, what what else could I possibly ask for in the world? You know. Yeah, no kidding, just, man! Incredible, amazing, and always like just he played. You know, he would. You know, he liked his drink, and you know, he wasn't unusual to get. I mean, all of us. I mean, we we're pretty drunk in band, and you know, like he could barely walk, and he would just play so beautifully, no matter what. Like nothing ever. I, I don't, I mean, if I'm that fucked up, I can't play for shit. I mean, I can barely play on a sober, uh, <laughs> but it would just be amazing to see like how, you know, whatever it was that made him, him, it just, you know, whatever was going through his head, it didn't, you know, like it was always beautiful and always geniusy. And as the, that feel, that incredible feel that he had was always there, no matter like just, you know, to this day, I still, you know, it's like one of the great mysteries of music is like, you know, how like that, his his feel was just so perfect every night every time and you know if i can get like one millionth of that i'd be ecstatic <laughs> um so so uh so y'all are playing with the blasters and and then you're still very interested in in production yeah so while this is all happening i'm still like kind of vaguely chasing this producing career so i there was before all a lot of this stuff uh, was happening and there was a guy named Brian Beverly who was very precocious singer songwriter. So I was in his band, which was called uh, the pep boys, two peas. And uh, I produced, I guess that would be my first official production was in, I produced a, a demo of, of his that got him signed to um, uh, uh, Denny Bruce's label, the uh, Tacoma. Um, and it was like kind of a big deal, like you know. And and the, the weirdest thing was, so somehow that that tape made its way to Paul Rothschild, and I got a phone call from Paul Rothschild asking me how I got the sounds on this this demo tape, which is yeah. again like like Paul Rothschild asking me how I got sound. Like, oh, I don't know how I got. I you know I just kind of you know. So he became <laughs> another another kind of man. Like I always like kind of lucked into these mentor relationships, like with with Lee and Paul was kind of. A mentor for me for for a while when he was around and that was kind of amazing um but i got 
Brian record deal that, I mean, no one's ever heard the record. It has the singular, th- this is what I was told. I was told that it was the last eight track made, that that record was made into an eight track wow. and then they stopped making eight tracks. So okay. it has, it has that distinction, but that, but you know, I made it and I, I produced it and I kind of figured out, you know, from just whatever that that's something I really, really enjoyed doing. And then uh, when, the Lobos kind of entered my orbit and, you know, we became friends and I just said, you know, Hey, if there's ever an opportunity to, you know, if you ever need somebody to produce a record, this is when I'm still in the blasters that, you know, I'd love to do it. I'd love to be part of it. So they uh, perhaps foolishly let me produce um, some stuff for them. <laughs> um, the, there was a, a thing for um, art, uh, art fine, or I'm sorry, art LeBeau. There's a rockabilly thing, like a rockabilly compilation record they were on that I produced. Mm-hmm. And then, there was some stuff for uh, a couple of movies. Uh, there was Devil in a Blue Dress and some other stuff that I did. And then Lobos got signed to Slash, and I was still in the Blasters, so I, I was not signed to the record deal. But I, you know, they they let me produce it with uh, with T Bone Burnett, mm-hmm. and that was I guess the start of my producing career, like the official start. I guess you know right. that was like the first any first thing I did of any any profile whatsoever. And then so I've sort of had this uh, I guess parallel career ever since. Nice, nice. Well, you know, so I, I reached out to my band, the Iguanas, you know, and I said, uh, hey, you, you have any uh, any good questions for Steve? Anything you want me to ask him? You know, well, first they said, well, tell Steve the Iguanas said hello. So well, hello from the right, Iguanas. Hello back at him. But, uh, but uh, they said, uh, yeah, ask him about uh, Phil and Dave fighting. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, well, famously, you know, they 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 can you know, go. That, out, yeah, know. that was a famous thing. They it's were not exactly famous. news. I mean, you know, brother. Yeah. You know, there's no such thing as as friendly brother bands. I mean, it's just you know, there's always <laughs> you know, mom like you best. You know, and yeah. the blasters, blasters were no different. And you know, they got it down. To, but see, the thing about the blasters is that they actually like to fight. I mean, like I don't. Yeah, I'm not, <laughs> they were into. They it. actually, they actually really got into it. I mean, they all enjoyed it. I mean, they would literally fist fighting was something they would look forward to. Oh my god! So it was not. So it was sort of like I don't know. I mean, it's like you know they're like soccer hooligans or something. I mean, they would right, right. Well, they were from Downey. They were from Downey, and what do you expect, people? Yeah, right. Yeah. So I mean, it wasn't. It was just stupid shit. I mean, but they would literally fight about the weather. I mean, they would fight about. Yeah. I mean. One of the more no- notable ones, they, they fought about the color of a 78. Like Phil said it was brown and Dave said it was black and Gene Taylor said <laughs> it was green. And they got into this huge battle in the, in the van over the color of the, of a, this, you know, and God, you know, it's a fucking 78. So you tell me, you know, it's, what it's does it even matter? 60 right. years old. Like what, <laughs> you know, like who cares? But that was like you know that that went on for a couple of days from memory serves. Uh, uh. So so it was a relief to get out of of all that that tension and and get with Lobos. Yeah, I, I gotta yes. say it was uh, you know for the first couple of years of Lobos, I would just you know because I was so used to it, I'd just start yelling at people you know, just because it was the only way to get heard. <laughs> They're like, who are, you, who are you arguing with, Steve? Let me ask you. So. You're with Top Jimmy, the Blasters. Where where is the Flesh Eaters come? Before Los Lobos? Yeah, Flesh Eaters was uh, before Los. I think it was yeah. like right before, even before the, the Blasters, because I did not play baritone or have a baritone at that point. So this was kind of like, uh, yeah, like would be what, 19, 
79 maybe so probably I think. yeah yeah so yeah i was just sort of like there on the scene and uh and um so i got invited to be part of that i, I guess that's kind of how dave you know i really dave got to see me do my thing but I, obviously the flesh years had very almost nothing to do with the music of, you know the blasters or anything else but um yeah that was that that was you know flesh just was an amazing and remains an amazing band i mean we we did that one record, which was great. And then 15 year, years later, we got together and we did a tour. And then two years ago, we made another record. Chris, what was his name? Chris? Chris Desjardins. Uh, Chris D. Right. But, you know, yeah. Right. Last name was okay. Desjardins. Really, really interesting dude. Just very, I mean, the, the I, I, I love those songs. I mean, it's not for everybody, obviously. But I, you know, like playing those songs. That's what I remember about the Flesh Eaters. It was like you, you really had to listen. If you liked them, yeah. you liked them. If you didn't, you didn't. Yeah. No, it was, you know, but, I mean, when we toured, it was it 70, yeah, or two years ago, in 19, I mean, people were like, it was it was kind of religious. I mean, people would come to the shows and it'd be like, you know, I, you have no idea what this show means to me. Like, it was so heavy for so many people, like the like the vibe of that band. I just... And you know, like the, the, one of the more amazing shows of that tour was we played at One Eye Jacks, and it was a hurricane. It was like Manny and I were at that show. That show was so fucking heavy, wasn't it? I mean, yes, it was like it was great. It was, it was like there was like, like ghosts and shit on in the room, and like like I, I just remember like standing there on stage and like this is some different shit. I mean, I, there was like yeah, like my hair was like standing up in my arms. I was like feeling like people like behind me and around me, like, you know, like it, it, it was definitely like some, some spirit action going on in the room that night for, for real, like in a way that something I've never really experienced before or since. Like, you know, I'm, I mean, I, I don't not believe in ghosts, but there was like, you, you could not be in that room and not, not feel the presence of other spirits. Just not happening. No way. Cool. But yeah, the special years was, you know, I mean, I would go, if they, if Chris called right now, I'd start packing and go. I mean, that's, I think we all would. Oh, well, that's cool. Well, Manny, this seems like a good time to take a little break and refresh our cocktails, don't you think? Okay, yeah. I'm going to take a shot of Pepto-Bismol. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's probably a good time. Uh, uh, um, uh, Steve, we always take a little break. Okay. And the troubled nation knows what we do. And, and we'll be right back. Station to faulty reception. Sub- 
back with Mr. Manny Chevrolet. I am Renee Coleman, back with our guest, Mr. Steve Berlin. Now, Steve, we have a terrific product we've been associated with for about a year now, and, and they're, they're, uh, they're expanding all the time. So, uh, Manny, why don't you tell Steve about this great line of products? Steve, I'm talking about the Velo Bar. Mm. The Velo Bar is a CBD bar. I'm in. It's healthy protein that fills you up and it calms you down. And who doesn't need to be calmed down these days? You know what I'm saying, uh, Steve? Nobody I know. Yeah. <laughs> a plant-based protein from healthy superfood ingredients like pumpkin seeds, hemp hearts, and chia seeds, and that 25 milligrams of CBD. It's the perfect bar to take the edge off. And right now, there's two great flavors. There's dark chocolate and peanut butter. And right now, Steve, if you go to VelobarCBD.com, you can get, take an order using the Troubled Men 1-5 promo code and get 15% off your order. 15% off your order and free shipping. This stuff's great. I mean, Renee, I, I love it. They're, they're really good. Yes. You know, yes. It, it's, it's better than a bong hit these days, you know. Sure. But then they have a they have a, a new product, right, Manny? Yes, do you want to yes, touch I'm on getting that? to that. Yeah, well, okay. Steve, if you go to VeloBarCBD.com and you click on what what's what are the uh, there's a certain link. Yeah, it's a, a link. It's it, it's it's in the show notes of, of the Trouble yeah. Man podcast, so you can find yeah. it in the in, in the uh, in the links. It's a Great Escape Chocolate Chip Cookie. That's the Great that's Escape the, Chocolate Chip Cookie, man. That's the new this thing. Is it's it's, it's a, a uh, Delta 8 THC cookie. It's a Delta 8 because the people at Velobar, who are based out of New Jersey, found a loophole in everything and were able to ship these cookies across state lines. So mm -hmm. if the troubled nation wants to go and get a THC cookie, you can do that too. And if you want to order the 25 milligram, the 50 milligram, or the 100 milligram cookie, and use this promo code, TROUBLECOOKIE15, you can get 15% off your order and free shipping. And I've had one of these cookies, Renee. Yep, me too. It, it, yeah, uh, they're not bad. They're not oh, bad. No, 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 no. They're uh, good. In fact, we, we got our first uh, uh, user testimonial came in this week, man. Do you want to hear oh, about it? Oh, yeah, sure. I'd love yeah, yeah, to. Yeah, so they contacted us directly. And the guy says, uh, holy shit, I listened to the commercial for Delta 8 cookies, and I did 25 milligrams last night. I should have listened before dosing. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, it came on after 90 minutes and kept coming. It was like a cross between good herb and acid. Uh, wow. wow. Well, that's what the CEO said. Didn't right. he say now, that? Now the, guy, the guy goes on to say that he listened to the, uh, the promo that we had a few weeks ago again, and, and uh, the CEO does clearly state to start off slow, maybe start off with uh, half, like 12 milligrams and see how you do. And so the guy, in, in retrospect, said, yeah, I think uh, next time I'll, I'll start with that 12 milligrams and, and see how it goes. But, but uh, they're definitely effective. So this, this guy bought four um, 100 milligram cookies I said well <laughs> you you have uh, a lot of a lot of material to get good at the dosing with so it's he's right. gonna get a lot of practice so 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 it's it's working Manny. it's working go ahead and that, and, and, and and he take it with some milk too milk okay. and cookies is always a good yeah thing I've heard of that yeah yeah yeah, yeah. you know and, and that guy is uh, Mitt Romney 
right? No. <laughs> well, I wasn't going to say his name, but now that you have, go ahead. <laughs> no, <laughs> may or may not be his name. I don't. Um, right, 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 right. That, that would be a story. Yeah, so it's, Steve, check it out. And actually, Steve, if you want, we'll send you some free samples. Yeah, by all means, please. It sounds delicious. Yes, we will. You're in Portland, Oregon, so you probably have all access to all that stuff, right? Yeah, but, you know, I mean. Yeah, check it out. We'll we'll send you some uh, uh, free samples, and you can get going on your addiction. Sounds good. (laughs) All right. And – and as always on the Troubled Men podcast, if uh, if you want to support the podcast directly, you can jump on that PayPal link in the show notes or the Facebook page and uh, and uh, support the operating costs of the Troubled Men podcast. Excellent. Well, back to our guest Steve Berlin. So, Steve, when we last left you, uh, you were you were just in in Los Lobos, and Los Lobos has had such a tremendous career. We can't go bit by bit over all of it, but there's a few few things I wanted to ask you about, and you feel free to to you know add things in. Well, a uh, question is, uh, when you guys were recording uh, uh, Kiko, did you understand at the time the gravity of what was going down, or was it? to feel like, oh, you know, we, we make records, we make good records. and No, we, uh, to be perfectly honest, um, so I'm going to back the story up a little bit. So mm-hmm. we, uh, you know, with this, so La Bamba was La Bamba, um, huge success. We, uh, we were, you know, we were on, we were the, we were the it girl for a while there. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, um, so we had uh, we rode that that balloon ride till it ended, and then uh, we did uh, another record called "The Neighborhood," which you know the thing about like the, everybody in Lovis is very level headed. Like, there's nobody you know everybody sort of has their wits about them, but there's no way to go through that and not think that you're kind of special, right? I mean, mm-hmm. just like there's no way to to like to stay as humble as you probably should. Right. So we kind of fell for the gag and kind of. So the the tour that we did after we did the neighborhood, like the, the so the neighborhood was, it, it it's kind of a troubled record. It took forever. We did this thing where we rehearsed it ad infinite. We just rehearsed it forever. So by the time it came time to play it, I hated that record. I hated the song. Yeah. I was I was <laughs> sick of them. I never wanted to hear them again. And then it was time to tour and record them. And, you know, like we recorded, it, which was no fun to uh-huh. be honest. But we got through it, and then we did the tour, which was kind of no fun because we just like we went out on a scale that was not we you know we couldn't afford for one thing. We're like we thought we were we were a big deal, and we had like two trucks and lights and a bunch of bullshit that we didn't need. So we you know mm-hmm. we, we we do all this shit. The record was pain in the ass. The whole process was pain in the ass. We're now like three years out from La Bamba, and we're flat broke. We're actually like in debt because we 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 fell for this you know music industry gag of you know you're a big deal and we weren't we were you know like basically when when the la bamba hubbub died down we were exactly where we were before it all started it was nothing you know it was nothing changed we're still playing the same clubs and stuff like that but now we have two buses and lights playing Uh you know the 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 jimmies of the world you know it's like nothing against jimmies but it was like Right, a giant payroll. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. big payroll, you know, like five, six crew guys and like, you know, this whole – anyway, long story short, so we got home from all that stuff and we were pissed off. Like we were pissed off that we fell for the gag. Like, you know, how mm-hmm. could we be that stupid? We're not We're not dumb. I mean, but we 
we were poorly advised to say the least. Um, we should have figured this shit out on our own, but we didn't. And you know, it's like one of those things you just had to go through it, I guess, to figure out what you don't want to do. So, right. you know, we get through all that stuff. We owe money We're you know, we'd never really lost money on a tour ever until that tour ever, like from the beginning, mm-hmm. before we were like anything, we, we always, because the guys had families, you know, like they all had kids to take care of. So we couldn't like, we, we could not tour at a loss. Yeah. Uh, because it was serious, but that tour was at a loss. Anyway, so we're mm-hmm. pissed off. We're mad at the world. We're mad at uh, ourselves, and it's time to make another record, and we were just like, fuck this shit. We're just going to do what we want to do. We're not going to listen to anybody, anybody. No, our, our manager is nobody. We're not taking anybody's advice. We're just going to go do what we want to do. And I had done some work at the studio called Paul and Mike's. Uh, it was a guy named Paul DuGray, who was a fantastic engineer. And it was uh, on the nickel in downtown LA. So like this is before it was a, you know, like a hipster street. It was like serious. Like it was, it was the bottom of the bottom of, of LA. I mean, it was just like homeless families living in boxes. I mean, it was just, oh, oh. wow. so, you know, poor little rock stars, you know, we sort of get, you know, like right away, you know, that's what the song uh, Angels with Dirty Faces is about. It's like, you know, uh-huh. we kind of got over ourselves pretty quickly, but it didn't help our mood <laughs> very much to, you know, sort of walk through this every day as we're doing the demos. But it actually, it was good because it made us like kind of understand how lucky we were, number one, to, to, to not be, you know, where these other folks were. And that uh, we had an opportunity to do something that was, you know, whatever it was going to be, it was going to be ours. And if we, we got dropped by our label or, you know, whatever was going to happen, we were prepared to deal with it and own it and just make it ours. Cause we just did not give a fuck about anything at that point, except, okay. you know, trying to do something that was going to be different and, and useful. So that was the mindset. It wasn't like we were trying to make art or, or do anything special. We were just kind of pissed off. So we, we did, uh, Six songs there at Paul and Mike's and played them for um, Lenny Warnker at uh, Warner Brothers, who, you know, to his enormous credit, like he, Lenny was always, 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 always like there for us. No matter how silly, how crazy the idea was, Lenny would always back us up. So when we wanted to do a folkloric record right after La Bamba, when, you know, we just sold, you know, a couple million records and we wanted to do a record of, of, you know, 200 year old <laughs> Latin folk songs. He was like, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. You know, how much do money? It was like, it was always, he was always nice. supportive. So we, we played him these demos and, and the shit was pretty, you know, it was unusual for the time. I mean, it wasn't, no, you know, when there was no uh, pavement, there was no Yola Tenga. There was nothing that sounded like the stuff we were doing, but we, you know, we really believed in it. We thought it was, it was special and good. Yeah. And he did too. And he suggested that we talk to, uh, that we, we have a conversation with Mitchell Froome, who we had met um, during the making of uh, One Time, One Night in America, which was two or three records prior. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had done, uh, there was one, re- one song on Neighborhood that we did with him, um, again, at Lenny's behest. But, but Lenny, you know, like it wasn't, it wasn't quite, you know, Mitchell at that point wasn't, you know, he hadn't really come into his own. Uh, okay. And he, at that point, Chad, I don't know if, I don't think Chad was in the picture yet. So they hadn't become the, the producing team that they then became. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we met with them and he was, he were, he was, we're, we're all in the same mood. Like they, he had just done a record with Chrissy Hine that was, 
you know, he hated and he hated working with her. And like, we were all like, I just remember like the overriding emotion being like, fuck the music business, fuck everything, fuck everybody. Let's just have a ball and make right. ourselves happy and whatever happens, happens. And that was, that was pretty much the whole attitude for that whole, that, that whole record was just, you know, and we just didn't care. Like, you know, I remember at the end when we listened to it, it was just like, wow, this is, this is kind of cool. Yeah. <laughs> but, but the whole thing was just basically like, you know, fuck you. Fuck everybody. We're 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 gonna have a, we're gonna have fun. And we did. It was a lot of fun. You you hadn't worked the joy out of it. Like you're talking about the the previous record where you rehearsed it and rehearsed it and rehearsed it. And and I'm I'm just thinking about you know the the recording process, records I've made, and yeah, it seems like the ones where you you keep a momentum and and you have some air under your wings and you you go through it kind of fast. Those are the ones that you not only do you enjoy and you have good memories about in most cases, but you can listen to them later on and go, oh wow, this sounds really nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was uh, it, it was you know I don't actually remember a lot of it. I mean, it was kind of dreamlike for. I mean, I remember everything about Paul and Mike's, but once we got with uh, Chad. And Mitchell, it was uh, it was a different deal. I mean, they, they, those guys are just geniuses. So I mean, that was like a, an order of magnitude higher than anything we aspired to. Nice. Although we we did nice. end up using quite a bit of the, the stuff from Paul and Mike's. I mean, I think all of the demos from there became the the genesis of the of, of Kiko. So I mean, we didn't throw anything away, as far as I recall. But um, yeah. you know, they're they're clearly you know, I mean, everything I know about Megan Records, I pretty much learned from Mitchell Frill. Okay. Well, and, and certainly you've, you've made a ton of records on, on your own. I mean, God, your, your, your production credits uh, just go on and on. Um, you know, I was looking through them, a couple of names jump out at me that, and this, this fella, uh, David Bearwald keeps coming up. Oh, so golly. Yeah. That I, one. I feel like when, when certain people come up uh, multiple times, either on the podcast or with, with guests on the podcast uh, it feels like that person is getting closer into the orbit you know <laughs> like i don't know he he may be in in our future so uh do you have any, any right. memories from that that uh David? oh god yeah that was so that was so he was in a band called david and david that made one fantastic record i mean it's i actually it's just so weird i just listened to it like literally like three days ago because uh there's a song on there that i was pitching to somebody that i'm producing uh but it was i mean it was the, both those guys are very, very, really, really talented. Bearwold was, is extremely gifted, great singer, great songwriter. Uh, you know, artistic personality, so a little hard to, you know, like stay with sometimes. But we, uh, so I was introduced to him. Uh, his his A&R guy at the time was Gary Gersh, who went on to be like kind of a big deal. But he was he got signed to A and M. They were on, yeah, they were on A and M, and then they broke up. They didn't really get along. So he was going to make a solo record and Gersh reached out to me. So we started working and it's funny, like this is like eight, late eighties, I guess, early nineties. But you know, it's a lot of like the records I do now are very similar. So this was like the primitive dawn of home recording technology. So we had an Akai 12 track. You remember those? Mm. They recorded on, yeah, uh, yeah. on uh, VHS tape. Okay. And so it was just him and me and like, we thought we were working on demos, but the shit was sounding really good. I mean, it was really, really good. And A&M was like, man, this is fucking great. I mean, we did a whole record on it. And, but David said, you know, I'd really like to, I think we should do this. I, I mean, we should just, you know, we should use this as a demo. Like we should, let's make it, let's, let's do it for real. Let's, let's get like other players. Let's, let's do some other stuff. So, and you know, at that time we were like kind of enthralled by the whole notion. 
So we made the record once, and then we made it again. <laughs> Same record. We just did it all again. Yeah. Uh, in a, and, but, you know, like, I, like my thing was I found all these, like, really weird recording studios. Like, the Paul and Mike's, like, that, I, I liked finding, like, really cheap, weird, uh, in weird neighborhoods <laughs> um, studios because they were cheap. Even back then, I wasn't, like, making, you know, I wasn't getting these big-budget records. So even though Bearwalt Bike, you know, actually was a big-budget record, um, we decided to record it at, uh, do you remember, you know the name Leon Haywood? He's, he's been, like, sampled a million times. He's a multimillionaire from, from like, Snoop Dogg sampling him and all these other rappers oh, okay. have sampled him. But he was, like, a he made some really good R&B records in the 70s. And he, yeah, he sits front row at the Laker games. I think. Oh yeah, <laughs> I think he passed not too long ago. Anyway, so he—I don't know how I—I I met him, but we became friends. And he had a studio in in uh, in Compton, so that was my place. I was like, it was like he—he he really like he really knew recording technology. Like he was a really smart guy, and he had a furniture store and a barber shop, and then the recording studio was in the back in Compton. And so, and it was, you know, he liked me, so it was super cheap and David didn't like to go fast. Like he liked to really take his time. So we were there for a really long time and we made the record again. And it, I, I was extremely happy with it. Um, I, that would, in the interim, I had produced the first Faith No More record and I met, uh, Matt Wallace who engineered and, you know, like he's also super brilliant producer engineer so it was me and Matt and David were making, remaking the, like the first version of the record was just me and Dave. Then Matt came in and we redid it again with Matt. And it was, I mean, I, to this day, it was a really, really good record, but it like what happened. And I, I think David would be the first to admit it is that he fell in love with the idea of getting up every day and making the record. So we did, you know, it took us like six months to do it the first time. It took us like another four months and he just, he never wanted to get up and not make that record again. So he ended yeah, up, he didn't like, want it to end. <laughs> he didn't want it to end. So like we, we finished it and we mixed it. It was at that point, it was really, it was kind of got a little difficult. Um, we were working like really late nights, the studio. I mean, this is sort of like when the riots were going on. So there's like this weird vibe in the room and, you know, it wasn't really cool for three white guys to be working in Compton anymore. Um, uh. Uh, so yeah, no, like, that doesn't sound like a good thing at all. <laughs> no, and it was just like me and Matt weren't. I mean, Matt's like the sweetest guy in the world, but I think that we were just sort of. I, I just remember like being like angry all the time. Like nothing made me happy, even though the record sounded fucking great. I would just like pick <laughs> all of his his mixes apart, and I said like really hurtful, stupid things to him, which to this day I'm really sorry for. But I just like it, it would just like I've been at it for too long. I've been at it for months and months and months, just doing the same shit over and over again. Basically, I mean, right. it still sounded good, but it was like. I was kind of cooked. And then David kinda was working the joy out of it. Like we're talking. Yeah. About, you know? And then yeah, David, yeah. like, then he started making noises about wanting to replace stuff. And when, and I realized like, he just wanted to keep making the record. So he, hired, like uh -huh. he hired uh, <laughs> Jim Scott, like he fired Matt. Like he didn't officially fire me, but like, I remember one day he said he was going to the studio and I wasn't invited. So he was like, he, he was like starting the record again with the, with Jim Scott and Jim called me. I was like, do you know what's going on with this? And I, like, and I just sort of said, I don't know, dude, but, you know, like call me. Oh, oh, it wasn't Jim Scott. I'm sorry. It was Larry Klein. So he was, oh, okay. it was oh, Larry uh, Klein. the Jim was, Jim was involved in the mixing, I think at the end, but it was Larry Klein. So we like the, the paradigm for that record was the, I don't know if you're familiar with the, the water boys. There was a record they made called Fisherman's Blues. Uh -huh. That was one of my favorite records. Still one of my favorite records, just this beautiful, very Irish, like all these like whistles and, and like, 
like this giant orchestra of like Irish instruments and really, really beautiful songs and heartfelt vocals and just like this wonderful thing. And that was sort of like the paradigm. That was like, to me, I wanted to do like a, a modern, like, like Barrowald's version. And he was on board with this. He like a version of Fisherman's Blues. So we would listen to Fisherman's Blues and then like kind of like interpret those ideas and like kind of steal shit from him. And, it, but it was all very organic. So it was like lots of, lots of um, slide guitars that sounded like other things. Lots of, lots of fiddles that sounded like other things that we, we just like, we, we tried to like do stuff with organic instruments that didn't sound like what they were. Like that was the thing uh-huh. like, we wanted it. We were just like layers and layers and layers of stuff, you know, kind of, I don't know. I'm not going to say, you know, like Phil Spector, maybe, I don't know. But anyway, so let me, I'll just real quick. So then he calls, so he brings Larry Klein in. And all of these beautiful organic sounds are then replaced with like '80s synthesizers, and that's oh, what. Geez. And that's <laughs> the, unfortunately that's the record that came out. Um, it, I don't. I, I think it's credited to Klein. I don't know, but that's uh. then finally the. So how out. did how did how did this album record sell then? Uh, uh, well? Dude, I don't think it did very much. I mean, at, at that point, it was really like all the joy had gone out of it. But it got like. Bearwald, like, you know, we had worked on a lot, a lot, a lot of material over the time. There was a lot of stuff that didn't make the cut. And then I heard uh, Cheryl Crow's, that her first, you know, the, the Tuesday Night Music Club. Yeah. And so many of those songs were, were David, the songs that, you know, like they were the germs of those songs were, were done with, those were Bearwald songs that, that uh-huh. you know, they turned into Cheryl right. songs. I mean, I'm not saying like those, you know, she put her own thing on it, but like a lot of those ideas were stuff that, that uh, I'd heard. David working on. So he became part of that band. Um, and that's kind of, that's where he became most noted. And then he made a, I think another, a record after that, uh, that was kind of crazy. It was called triage. Like he was a very, triage, like, right, right. his, his whole worldview was very, 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 very dark. Like, you know, so he, you got out of Compton. Yeah. I got out of he made it out of Compton. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so that, that's the Just part. In well time. Said. Yeah. But I'm looking at your producing credits, and it goes from, I mean, Faith No More, R.E.M., The Go-Go's. I just played on those records. I did not produce those. I, I, those oh, those okay. You credits. played on no. those records? Yeah, I played, with, I played on uh, the, the, or the, there's like two or three R.E.M. songs I did. I was good friends with, um, oh, you know, he, he put me on a lot of stuff. Scott Litt, yeah. So he produced the R.E.M., and then he produced uh, the, the replacements, you know, it was the Paul Westerberg solo record that was uh, credited the replacements, but you know, I, I, there was almost no replacements on the record. Oh, okay. Now, what about what about the Smithereens? Just played on a couple of their two or three of their records. Yeah, was, they're friends of mine too. My band toured with them on the West Coast, from like Vancouver all the way to like Phoenix. And uh, we were we were green. It was like the first time we were touring with a, a name band. And uh, uh, Pat Nuzio was that his name? Yeah, Pat, Pat Nuzio. Yeah. I just felt he was just a jerk. That guy was one of the biggest <laughs> jerks. He was uh, he was kind of a handful. I mean, it, he was always you know we we got along pretty well. But I remember, <laughs> I there was one time like I ran into him like after I'd done played on the records and like he did, he was not shy about telling you like everything that was happening in his world. Like he would just go on and on and on. Like, so we were playing somewhere together and he's like, Oh, I'm doing this and doing this and doing this. And like, you know, just going like literally like 15 minutes of his accomplishments. And I just, I looked at him and I said, Oh, Pat, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll just see you on the way down, I guess. 
<laughs> that's a great that's a great that's a but the other guys in the band were the sweetest guys you know yeah they were they, they took were us great. in yeah, yeah, they, they took, the, yeah, yeah. What's it, Dennis? And uh, what was the bass player's name? Yeah, they were all sweethearts. I mean, they, they, you know, Pat. I, I would not want to be in a band with him, but he was fine. It was to, Mike and Dennis. Yeah, Mike Dennis, and Mike, Dennis. Yeah. And even for a while there, uh, one of the Ramones bass players filled in for a while there. Oh, cool. They yeah, I forget his name, but anyway. Uh, yeah, I you know it was our my first experience touring. You know, never did it before. I was so green to it. I'm not a musician. I'm, I'm just an entertainer. But they wanted <laughs> us to open. They just I'm wanted an us exotic to open. entertainer. Yes, yeah. Yes. Well, yeah. I, I'm quite a lively dancer. I'm yes, quite a lively yes. dancer. You know, but I, I, you know, it was weird for me. You know, I mean, they were. It, it was very strange. We, in fact, we played. We actually played this gig in Portland, where you live, where. Um, it was the weirdest thing. I'd never seen it growing up in LA. I've never seen this before, but they had a velvet rope from the middle of the stage where uh, 18 and older on one side, 18 oh, yeah. and younger yeah, on the other that was, side. Th that must've been the uh, crystal, crystal ball. Yeah, they still have ball. it. They still have that. They still have that. Yeah. Cause it's, you know, and I mean, see, I did this, I did this gig. It was two free stooges. We were a Vegas punk rock act. So it was like Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin meet punk rock. <laughs> so you got two guys who are fronting the band telling jokes and singing songs. So we come out and we do our dance routine, you know, opening act. And I'm on the side 18 and younger. And my partner's on the, you know, 18 and older side. And he's playing to like hundreds of people or, you know, not hundreds of people, but, you know, like 50, 60 people. And I'm playing to like eight people. <laughs> so, um, so it was yeah. very hard. It was very Showbiz, hard. It's, man. A, Showbiz. It's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's a weird room, but, you know, it's one of those rooms that was built in the 20s. So I don't know if you, you could feel it, but it's built on springs. Oh, so when, when the room starts uh, starts jumping, um, the place literally is jumping. I mean, like there's a there's another one called the Commodore Ballroom in uh, Vancouver, um, BC. That uh, same thing, and that one, this, this like the ones at the Crystal are kind of tight, so it takes like a whole room. Like I saw um, D'Angelo there, and it was it was definitely bouncing for him. Uh, but the uh, the one at the the Commodore, which I hope is still there. I don't you know. I only these places. I know the Crystal's still there, but. The Commodore, it wasn't hard to get the room literally like bouncing up and down. I mean, like you could, it, wow. it's like, it was not a small <laughs> amount. So that's, you know, just so you know, but yeah, it, the, yeah, the, it's still like that. And it's, uh, it's, you know, when my kids were younger, I, we would go to a lot of shows together. It was great. I mean, it, it was kind of fun, you know, it was, Nice, nice. Well, uh, an another thing thing that you show up in is the, uh, the morphine journey of dreams movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and Mark, Mark was a, a good friend of mine and, and yeah, I'm know, going to see him tomorrow. I'm actually, I'm going to Austin tomorrow. I'm going to stay at his house. I'm, gonna, I'm working on uh, John Doe and the next John Doe record. And, uh, and also a band called the South Austin Moonlighters. I'm, uh, oh, are you working on that John Doe record? That's good. No, I was talking yeah. about Mark Sandman. Um, oh, Mark Sandman. Oh, I think you meant Mark Schumann. The, the, the director of the movie is another Mark. Right. Yes. 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 Yeah. 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 No, I'm no, I was, I was a friend of Mark Sandman. So, uh, but, that uh yes that that band uh like like many people that's a much beloved band 
Oh my God. Oh, I loved, I, you know, we, so I knew Mark from Treater Wright. Like we played with Treater Wright quite a bit, like back in the, back in the day. Right. Okay. And I was, uh, I was supposed to, at one point I was going to produce the record and then they, they decided to pick, uh, or somebody decided that they should do it with a, a bigger name. So they ended up, I forget who produced that first record. Um, George Martin. No, it wasn't George Martin. It was somebody else. Anyway, um, but we were really Mark and I were really good friends. He would whenever he came to late to L.A., he would stay at my house. And my wife unabashedly said, "You know, I, I love you dearly, but if Mark ever told me to go with him, just you know, you'll figure it out. I'll, he, you'll know where I went." He's loaded with sex appeal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He is one of the sexiest, sexiest human beings alive. But <laughs> yeah, I, I understood it. I, I, you know, I totally, I. I I, yeah, you know, probably, you know, it's like, <laughs> I, what can I, you know, like Brad Pitt or something. Like, what are you going to do? Right. Yeah, yeah. I know. <laughs> he was a doll, though. I mean, we had a great, we had a really good, good relationship. I have the same problem, Steve. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Manny Chevrolet, he's fighting him. Yeah, it must be hard, man. It is hard. It really is. Well, Steve, living in L.A. as a saxophone player, you must have crossed paths with Jerry Jumanville, huh? Yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah, he was. Quite a character. He was uh, he was a guy that I, I pursued him for the podcast for about a year before he passed away, and I finally uh, caught up to him in the hospital bed, and I was like, "Well, oh, Jerry, man. now it's what are we going to do now?" <laughs> so oh, that's too bad. Yeah, he was something. Who was his partner? Uh, Lee uh, uh, was the set, the trumpet player that they they were like a section together. Lee Marvin. No, it's like Lee uh, Lee Thornburg. I I ended up I worked okay. with Lee a lot. Not I mean I did stuff with Jerry as well, but we uh, but uh, Lee Thornburg and I like he did a lot of arranging stuff for me back in the day. Okay, nice, nice, nice. Well, so uh, just so we're we're kind of on the downslope of the podcast here. So what's uh, you know what's been going on during COVID? What's going on with Los Lobos up in the future? You guys have plans? You have uh, yeah, we've been uh, we actually made a record. Believe it or not, like we started it right at the beginning of this insanity, like literally like a year ago or yeah, February. Okay, and uh, we just finished it. It'll be out in uh, in uh, July. It's 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 kind of cool. It actually, very sort of goes with this podcast. So it's a record of uh, covers for about and by LA. So it's like our love letter to Los Angeles. So we got uh, this beach boys song and a Buffalo Springfield song and a Jackson Brown song and uh, the war. We did the world is a ghetto. We did uh, Jamaica say you will. Um, we did a couple of uh, midnighter songs. You know, we couldn't, we couldn't not do a East LA thing. So right. it's a, it's a cool record. It was a lot of fun. A lot of fun to make, um, even though, you know, obviously it's crazy under COVID times. But uh, basically, we would just get together for like a week, a month, or through the whole year. Like, you know, we, we would just sort of take it like one or two songs at a time. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it's uh, so we, we got something to, to show for our time. Good for and, you, uh, man. Excellent. Besides that, I just, I've never, like, you know, like I've been producing, like sitting in my chair here in my office where I'm speaking to you now. I've been like doing records all over the world. Like I'm, whenever we get done, I'm, I'm working on a record later on tonight with a guy named Chris Gonzalez Clark, who was in a band called uh, Los Otros. And it's fucking amazing. I mean, it, you know, with all due modesty, it's, it's a really, really, really cool record. I'm really just having a ball with it. Like kind of like uh, it's sort of like uh, like a Latin tame impala, 
<laughs> oh, cool. Or less, something, something like that, but, but, but like super psychedelic, like no idea is too weird. Like every, like the craziest idea that we, like who anybody, like Tim or me comes up with, like whatever it is, it's like, okay, well let's take that to like, what would that sound like if it was coming out of your ass or, you know, like, like whatever, okay. like less, like every, everything we're, we're trying to make a, a, a psychedelic record. But you know, like a cool one, and you know, Latin, cool. So right. it's just been a ball. It, um, that'll you know, I'm kind of like Bearwall. Like I'm going to be really sad when it's over. But yeah, you know, yeah I, no, I have other records to make, so I know I, I know I can't keep doing it over again. Right, right. Excellent, excellent. And I saw on your your uh, your Facebook page that the you're on the new Cruzados record, which is some old yeah, Manny yeah, with, uh, with Tony. Yeah, that was kind of nice nice to hear from him. Yeah, it's really cool. It's good rec- good good song and. I guess he got a bunch of the old dudes together. He's got Dave's on there and uh, some other some other old folks. Uh, like you mean the plugs? Uh, yeah, Tony sorry. from the plugs. Yeah. You know, we've talked about this before, Renee. You know, um, there have been like bands that uh, I mean, you could put shed some light on this, Steve. There are certain bands that I've seen over the years, like the Plugs or like Fishbone. Um, who are amazing to see live, but they just they just never came across on vinyl. You know, well, and- we, uh, you know, yeah, the Fishbone. That's a really, I mean, that's a huge challenge to capture. I'm like, how do you get that energy on record? But I thought the uh, the second Plugs record, which was the last one that I was on, I thought did a pretty good. Like that was the Better Luck, the one that has Blue Sofa on it. I mean, that you know that and that band was so is me, Tito, Tony. And uh, the, the guy who's now like Mr. Uh, Oscar, the Gustavo Santuala, who does, you know, like he's won the, the scoring, film scoring Oscar like 10 years running now. Yeah. Uh, and uh, his partner, a guy named Anibal Sanchez. Um, so that was, I mean, that, and Charlie Quintana. I mean, good God. I mean, that one of the best drummers ever. Um, so that, that, that was actually pretty close, I thought. And, but, you know, I always thought like, you know, my two favorite bands in L.A., were X and the, and the plugs. I mean, I mean, of course the blasters, but I mean, the plugs on a good night were as, they were as amazing as anybody ever. And it was really like Charlie. I mean, Charlie was just such a motherfucker. It was like, it was like a young Tony Williams. Like he was such a virtuoso. Wow. At an, at an era when, you know, you know, I mean, nobody really knew. I mean, they've come, I mean, Don Bonebreak is now a brilliant, you know, he's a master musician, but you know, in 1980, we were like, you know, we were all, what, 21, 22, 23. Right. Charlie shows up, and he's 17. I mean, he can't even get into the clubs that we're playing at. And he's like the baddest, one of the baddest drummers ever. I mean, he's like monster drummer. And so that band was, yeah, they were they were incredible. The three-piece, you know, band, the, the before Tony, when uh, Chris was the bass player. Well, also, I, I mean, they were so good, Dylan used him for the, uh, one of his records. Right, yeah. You know, yeah, Bob Dylan. Yeah, yeah. Dylan. yeah they were. Now, I'll, I'll never forget uh, me and my friend Dick Rude were at Tito's apartment, and he had just come back with jamming with Dylan, and he had this cassette tape, and he was rewinding it. And uh, it was the funniest thing because it's like you're hearing all this music that he's rewinding and rewinding, and it seems so fast, so fast, so fast, and then he plays it. It's so slow, so slow, so slow. <laughs> you know, so slow. But yeah, I, you know, we've talked about it before, Renee. There are just certain bands that, uh, you know, it doesn't, and they were one of them. And I felt yeah, bad because, 
Yeah, they were one of those bands that it's like these guys be, should be selling records, selling yeah. tons and. Tons you know who else was like that? It was uh, Wall of Voodoo? Like the the live Wall of Voodoo was unfucking yeah. man. They were yeah. overwhelming. I mean, it was just so powerful and heavy. Yeah. And you know, the records were not particularly heavy, but they, you know, live they were. Yeah, that, that was Absolutely. an amazing experience. I saw them at the Roxy in like eighty nineteen eighty, and it was like. It's one of the. It's probably one of the best shows I've ever seen in my I'm life. I'm sure I was there, and the, if I remember, that was like their lights were always. They had like one bulb. Remember that? It was one bulb yeah. on the stage that was like flickering, and the entire there was like one like 25 watt bulb, and then they had all these like before anybody really knew anything about stagecraft. They had all these lights on the side, so I just remember like Stan would be like you know like only one side of him would be like lit like bright purple. And then the, the 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 one bulb would flicker, and then it'd be like bright green on the other side. It was just like <laughs> it was so cool. You know, I just nice. to this day, it's like one of the most remarkable stage shows ever. And then you know, just like the 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 early you know eight nineteen early eighties synthesizers low end. So it's just like all this like monster monster like you know just crushing low end. <laughs> it was pretty fun. Cool, cool. Well, Steve, uh, uh, I think, Manny, that seems like a podcast, huh? Yeah, well, I just want to ask, you know, because I want to. I've been doing this lately with our guests. I'm just going to give them a, a get question. Get ready, Steve. Get ready. Yeah. Uh, okay, Steve, you're a, a grown man, like you know, a little older than us. So, but as a man, uh, I'm going to give you a, a, an option. Okay. Would you rather <laughs> accidentally lose control of your bowels during a prostate exam? Or get an erection during a hernia check. Oh, erection for sure. Right? Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm having to go with who, that too, man. That's who who would like, like? Yeah, really. Like that's a. <laughs> does anybody choose losing their? You know, <laughs> yeah, right. right. <laughs> well, you know, I don't want. I, I don't want to know. You know, maybe uh, yeah, what's his name? Uh, maybe uh, El yeah, well, or, it's a, or, you know, but if you get that erection, uh, who knows what your doctor is going to think? You know, well, that kind of they're, stuff. they're doctors. I guess that it happens in the real world. You know, it's I, I don't know. Luckily, uh, neither one of those. I, I haven't I haven't had to, to, gotten close to either one of those. Hopefully, okay. I never will. But, uh, uh, yeah, it's an int- interesting line of reasoning there. Ready? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we're, we always like to keep it classy on the Troubled Men podcast, yeah, Steve. clearly. So, uh, obviously. you know, we like to leave you leave you with something to think about. I just want to applaud Manny for hanging in there. I know you weren't feeling well, but you, you rose to the challenge. So, yeah. I appreciate it. All right. Keep drinking that water, Manny. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Gatorade right. too. I, I hear like lots of electrolytes. That's somebody told yes. me. I mean, I, I had second shot. I'm fine, but they, somebody said that that's a good one too. Yeah. So. All right. Thank you. Uh, good night. The Troubled Nation knows the uh, drill. I like to say, uh, trouble never ends, uh, but we continue to struggle. <laughs> good night. <laughs> <laughs>